Hello, everybody. I'm Christian Gray. This is Tribal Theocrat Live. And it's June 15th, 2013, the year of our Lord. Our guest today is the same guest as last week. This is a return engagement. Jamie Dobb is on the line to talk about not UK issues as he did two weeks ago, but some South Africa issues and talk about his visit to Irania. So, Jamie, welcome. Hi there, Christian. Thanks for having me back once again. It's a pleasure to be back on. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to listen. I hope uh, I can shed some light on the affair of what's going uh, on down there. Did I pronounce Irania correctly? Or is it Irania? Uh, Actually, it's uh, Irania. That's how they pronounce it. Irania, yeah. Got it. Um, But I tend to pronounce it Irania anyway, but, you know, the Afrikaners, it's, well... Sure. (laughs) Well... Thanks again for staying up so late. I know you are, uh, you live over in Britain, and it's great for you to be so willing to uh, discuss these issues, which are very, very important, I believe. So thank you. Oh, oh, no problem. Like I said last week, I am a night owl, and this is my uh, usual waking time anyway, so Excellent. You know, I'm cool doing this. <laughs> There's a chat room at tribaltheocrat.com. Hit the chat button at the top menu. You can ask questions. We'll try to get to those periodically. We have a lot to cover. I guess, Jamie, we'll just dig in with your journey to South Africa and your experiences there. Sure. Okay, then. Well, I'll start off. Uh, First of all, I have family down in uh, South Africa. They live in uh, Cape Town, which is uh, in the western uh, province of South Africa. Uh, And, um, you know, they've been there for a number of years now. And so uh, I, I went a, a few years ago on a visit uh, to the country at the invitation of my uh, relatives. Now, I was very apprehensive to begin with at first. I mean, you hear so much about South Africa, the crime and the, the killings. And, you know, even I was nervous about uh, going down there. And uh, it was back in December 2010. And... Um, and this was when I first went uh, went to visit. And um, at that time, the UK had had a lot of uh, heavy snowfall. And uh, at, at that time, it was one of the worst we'd had in like years. Um, the snow literally rose to about two feet. And I was just due to get on my plane, uh, you know, a few days before. And so I was panicking. Oh, no, I'm not going to be able to get to South Africa, man, you know. But uh, fortunately, God willing, I was able to do it. Uh, the UK is very paranoid about shutting airports down with the snow anyway, EU regulations and all that. So we, we have to be very careful here. But uh, yeah, luckily, I was able to get down there and, uh, you know, take the flight over there. And um, I literally went from minus 12 centigrade, uh, which is, I think, uh, in Fahrenheit and... Um, I think I think it's just um, I'm not sure the actual conversion, but uh, anyway, it's very cold, and um, I went from freezing cold weather with a Russian hat on, um, which is known as an Ashanka in Russian, by the way, uh, all the way to 30 to 40 degrees heat in South Africa, which is um, which is like um, in your in your temperature about 120 Fahrenheit, 110. So I literally went from Siberia to uh, the Sahara, you know, and uh, having having to. Actually, get off the plane with a Russian hat on and a huge, you know, coat into, you know, having to strip down. It's, it's quite a, an interesting experience. I'll, I'll say that. But, uh, but anyway, I get down there and um, I'm greeted with with the family, and I spent a few weeks in the Cape. And what amazed me was how things were. And for example, my, my aunt and uncle, the first thing they did, they drove me past a township. Now, the townships are where the poor Negroes in South Africa live. Um, they are basically shack 
cities. Um, you can get eight to 12 people in a tiny hut. They have little sanitation and they live on a, um, a, a literally a rice diet at best, a, a mealy diet. Um, as my aunt quoted, she says, Jamie, my dogs eat better than those blacks. And what, what, and you look at these towns and I said, well, how many people are living in these townships, Auntie Erica? And she said to me, about half a million. That's about 500,000 people live in these townships. They've got nothing. And this is what you first see when you get into South Africa. And there's also another group called the Cape Coloureds. Now, the Cape Coloureds are the mixed race of South Africa. They were... Um, a, 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 they were actually the uh, the bastard children, if you like, of the whites, the blacks, and the the Khoi Khoi and the Malay um, indentured servants and slaves that were brought over uh, originally by the Dutch East India Company uh, to the Cape around the sixteen seventeen hundreds. They have become a separate racial entity on their own, and they all also live in the townships. Um, half of them you can find are out working uh, and doing uh, working hard for the families, but the other half are just like the blacks languishing in the uh, in the townships, and and what and what amazed me in particular during my exploration of the Cape was how the different racial groups interacted. And I was chatting to one guy, and he was ex South African Defence Force, and he was telling me all the the juicy details, if you like, of the races in South Africa. And he told me, he said, uh, Jamie, what you have to understand about the mixed race coloureds is that they are the most easiest as a group to control. They have no identity. They are ident you know, they're, they're cultureless. They're just stuck in the middle. Um, whereas the blacks and the whites do have a culture and an identity to fall back on. But these people are just, uh, they just exist. They are just like a, an existing population. And he said, as a result of this, we always found them, even under the apartheid era, easy to control because they had no identity. And when you have a people that have no identity, they make good slaves. And this is why, as I discussed earlier, this is why the New World Order wants to have a mixed race population. Because when you have a mixed race population, they are the easiest to control. If you have no identity, no culture, what can you fall back on? And so that was the case with the coloureds, and I and I did learn quite a lot about them. And um, a bit like my uncle was saying, he said, they're bloody interesting to look at, man, those coloureds. I mean, some of them look really black, some of them look really Asian, you know, but, you know, none of them look white. And as my aunt was saying, in the old South Africa, the coloureds were, were too black, uh, were too black for the old South Africa, whereas for the new South Africa, they're not white enough. And... Uh, and uh, uh, but what we have to find, understand about the Western Cape is that as the population, uh, by and large, the coloureds are the largest ethno group of the entire province. In fact, that is pretty much where they are in South Africa. You know, that's kind of, you know, their homeland, if you like. The rest of the country is a black majority. Um, in regards to the blacks themselves, there are various, many, many tribes. The um, the, the largest, if I recall, are the um, the Zulu and the Kosa, which is spelled uh, X-H-O-S-A. Now, don't worry about this, folks. I had trouble pronouncing pronouncing this, but uh, and I thought, how do you pronounce the X? But that's what they're called, the Kosa. And uh, I, if I recall, I think Mandela is a Kosa, whereas uh, Jacob Zuma is uh, 
is Zulu. And what you tend to find with the Zulus, they tend to be from the very noble uh, black lines, whereas I think the, the Kosa, on the other hand, are from the more, if you like, the, uh, the unfavoured background. Uh, there are many others as well, including the Pedis and the Swanas and the Sotho, and they all have their own language and dialects. And, and as ethno groups, they absolutely loathe each other. There's no unity with the black man in uh, South Africa. Now, the white population of South Africa are comprised primarily of the uh, the Afrikaners and the British, the English-speaking South Africans. Now, the English-speaking South Africans primarily descend from the Anglo-Irish stock. Um, but if you listen to them, though, they sound to our ears just like Afrikaners. Uh, I mean, I've, I've caught several of them out now saying, are you an Afrikaner, man? And they'll be like, no, 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 I'm British, man. I'm British. I'm not an Afrikaner. And they get very offended by it because they, they really like to think, you know, they're still related to the mother country, whereas... You know, whereas they don't realise they they do actually have become Afrikanerised, as I'd say, they've taken many of their of the Afrikaners' culture and even even their own accent, and they have become alien in a sense to the modern day Brits. Now, the Afrikaners themselves, they are from um, the Dutch, French, and um, a German background. Um, they first arrived in the Cape around uh, 1652, uh, if I recall. They've been in South Africa as long as the average white American has been in America. In fact, I would say they only arrived a few decades just after the, the first Englishman set foot in the New World. Um, but uh, they, they've been there. They've become native uh, to the continent. And if you to, were to ask an Afrikaner, is he European first? Or is he an African? An African? He will say he's an African first. I mean, I'll just ask you this question: If I said to you, "Are you American first or European?" What would you say, Christian? I'd say I'm white. Just white. You uh, you, you you caught me off guard. I'm sorry, I'm just I'm just oh well, never mind. But um, what I mean by that is, if if you, uh, what, what I'm trying to say is as an identity. Yeah. If if you were to say, yeah, I'm, I, like I'm European, European or American, would you go? American or European first, just just as a general question. Yeah. I, I, in in today's context, because America is a propositional identity, I I prefer to call myself an American, or I'm sorry, a, a, a European, because there has more of a Caucasian connotation there. But I'm not sure what you're getting at. I'm sorry. Well, what I, what I'm trying to say is is that. Um, it's down to being native to the continent, you see. Now, the Afrikaner views himself as native to Africa, so he will always say, I'm African first. Even though he's a white man, even though he's European just like us, I gotcha. he views himself as native. So that's what I'm trying to say. Would you view yourself as a European native or an American native? It's just a general question for Americans in general, just if you, if you can get what I'm trying to say. I I think so. <laughs> oh, no worries, no worries. But uh, that's uh, but what, what I'm trying to say is the American will view himself as a native to America. He's been there since um, and the, the European immigration to that continent. And it's the same with the Afrikaner. You know, his roots are in Africa, man. You know, he's he's African, and um, they don't view themselves as as Europeans. So I that's see. what I'm trying to yeah. get my get my point across. Yeah. Um, but in regards to the Western Cape itself, I, I've travelled around that. And it is a very, very lovely part of the country, but it's like my uncle said, um, it's the uh, it's the best part of South Africa. He said, if you go to the rest of the country, that is run by the ANC, which is Nelson Mandela's party. It's 
that you know the country really has turned to shit potholes all across the road crimes rampant the whole lot whereas the, the western cape is run by the democratic alliance which i'll, I'll get into later uh, but this is the party of the coloreds and the whites over there both vote for and I'll be discussing uh, discussing that a bit later on. But what I found with the Africana was that he had a very warm, friendly culture. Um, I've never seen this in the UK before. I mean, I come from England where people, you know, regularly swear at one another and have no love. Uh, there's very little community spirit anymore in England. I mean, it does exist in some places, but uh, not like it does in South Africa. The Africana stuck together. And like, I remember being on the street, um, I think it's in Kyle's River, that's where my, my aunt and uncle live, and my cousin, and it, it was mixed, it was a mixed racial uh, community by and large, because unfortunately people have had to, you know, live together with the integration, but the segregation was still very prominent within the mind of the Africana, and that is what they'd do is, even though they'd be friendly to the coloured neighbour, they'd always stick together. Like, if my aunt needed help with the car, she'd go across to the road to the Afrikaner neighbour and he'd come over and help her out and fix a car. Uh, the guy and, and the, uh, they'd all have brides together. They'd all celebrate the new year together and they all work together as a community. And uh, I found that such very, very interesting. And But as a population, they are very concerned about their own future. I mean, uh, this is crazy, Christian, what I'm going to tell you right now. But when people tell me that the West is about to collapse or we're going to have a race war or something or another and I, I just laugh at these people and I said we're nowhere even near that yet and then I told them the story of what I encountered and that is my I actually remember seeing two little old ladies with their you know knitted hats on you know these are you know typical grannies that you know bake and you know you know sell you know go to the bake sales you know good Christian old ladies and they we're actually asking a South African Defence Force uh, volunteer, that's the ex, you know, SADF, uh, the old apartheid military. And, he, and uh, he, they're actually asking him, how do you make bombs? Because they were so frightened of there being a future conflict. And like my aunt always worried, she says, Jamie, the, you know, the blacks are going to rise up and kill us. People were living in fear. And the neighbour across the road actually said to her, what will become of us as a people? You know, he'd got his own children and he was scared. You know, he was scared for the future of that country. They, they, they you know, the, the, the native to that continent now, they've got no real ties with Europe. Just like Americans, in a sense, have, have, have developed their own identity in America. And, and yet they're being persecuted. It's, it's like white Americans being forcibly driven from the, the homeland that their, their fathers had conquered. And it's the same, same for the Afrikaner. You know, his, far, his forefathers conquered that continent and now they're being driven from it, even though they've been there for 400 or 500 years. Yeah. Um, and that's the reality yeah. in, in South Africa. Um, yeah, it's, it's terribly sad what's happening there. We, why don't we back up and, and talk about the history of the Afrikaner before all this, uh, before, they were, before they, were, they were forced to appreciate diversity. Oh, 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 absolutely. Well, uh, like I've said before, the Africana um, settled around the Cape continent, I think around the 1650s, uh, and he came from the, the Dutch East India Company, uh, those ships. Now, originally, the country itself was only founded as a trading post, and that was um, the Dutch were primarily interested in getting their ships across to the Indonesia, which was the Dutch East Indies at the time for the spices and the silks. And... Um, Primarily the spices, but there was also silk in India, so you know they were doing a lot of trade there, and uh, and it was just simply a um, 
a, a, a trading colony, and and so that the founders there. So there's only a few. Uh, there's only really a few founders, a few pioneers that came from the uh, the East India Company that set set up shop there, and they invited a lot of the um, the slaves in at the time that they brought in from the East Indies that established uh, Kapstadt, which is now Cape Town. And that was the first city. It was pretty much under Dutch rule or, um, until the time of Napoleon, when um, Napoleon conquered the Netherlands and uh, the British then took the Cape Colony for themselves. Uh, but it'd be, it had been within the Dutch sphere for at least 300 years previously, so this, this, this strong Dutch culture had still developed. During that time, however, due to the religious insurrections in Europe during the Protestant Reformation, uh, many French uh, Protestants, the Huguenots, uh, who I also have ancestry to, by the way, uh, settled in the uh, Cape Colony, along with these Dutch Afrikaners and incoming Danish and German mercenaries were employed and they later on migrated with the, the Afrikaner. Now, because of this mixing originally, there were these strict segregation laws then started to, to take place, uh, the, the early ones, if you like, and it, and, and it came... To, you know, to preserve, if you like, the, the white man in, in in the Cape Colony, and uh, there was some a mix, mixing originally, like I said, with the coloureds, but by and large there was separation. And even the Dutch authorities did issue the first pass system, which was later on used implemented during the apartheid era, and that was uh, blacks and co- coloureds had to have passes if they wanted to access Dutch territory. However, the black man was not native to South Africa; he wasn't native to the Cape Colony. That is a myth that the multiculturalists have propagated. There was very little, few inhabitants when the Afrikaner founded that colony. In fact, the vast majority of them were the Bushmen that were there and they've gone extinct. Um, the um, uh, uh, and, uh, and they emerged also with the coloureds. Um, so they they just disappeared off the map. By and large, the first men that were there were white men, and they pretty much built up the modern infrastructure of that uh, territory. And um, so, anyway, the the British eventually took over, and um, the um, so the Africa and due to you know harsh economic sanctions by the British, uh, the African. Uh, had enough, and um, and due to the repression of, of British rule, they said, "Right, you know, we, we, we're going to have to find a new homeland." Now, unlike the unlike the Americans that had had vast numbers of people uh, migrating to these shore to, to to the American shores that could actually resist the British, the Afrikaner, on the other hand, only had few numbers, and as a result of this, he had to had to survive the best he could. So he couldn't resist the British. He couldn't have his own 1776 revolution. He was too weak. And so he had to trek out into the, into Africa to find a new homeland for himself, which he, which he did successfully. Uh, the, and this led on to what is called the Great Trek or the Hoot Trek, if I, uh, if, if my pronunciation is correct. And that is that a few small, uh, if, if you like, pioneers left the Cape Colony. And they then started to traverse around the country to find a, a, a new republic and a new homeland to live away from British rule. But every time they tried to find a new republic or a new homeland, the British would always catch up with them and annex the territory, so they were never able to be free. Um, now, there was an interesting episode when the Afrikaners founded the... The first was the Natal colony, which you know, the British did take over originally, and they had to then trek to the north... And with that, they founded the Transport and the Orange Free State colony. 
and um, well, the, which then became the the Boer republics. Um, however, there was certainly an interesting period that occurred there when the um, when the Boers started to encounter the first black inhabitants, which was in the northern parts of the country. These were the Zulus and the Kosa and so forth. Um, and what they and what they did is they made treaties with them originally. Um, have you uh, there was there was names such as uh, Piet Retief and um, that that was one one of the chaps that were, that that uh, was part of this expedition and um, there, there was another there was another um, and there was another fellow as well. Um, just looking up at his name here. Yeah. Oh, do you know something? I hate it when I forget these names. But anyway, it'll come to me later. But. Um, but, but anyway, they they tried to do a, a deal with the Zulus as Piet Retief, and um, he said, um, and the Zulus un, under the, the chief uh, Dingan at the time, uh, they actually said, right, you know, we'll do a deal with the Afrikaners. You can have the land uh, if you give us so much cattle and resources. And so the Afrikaners said, yeah, sure. So they did this deal with them, and um, and so Dingan, the Zulu chief, then then chief. Chief, uh, the, the, the Zulu chief then invited the Afrikaner into, um, if, if, into, if you like, his, his palace, which was really a hut, but you know his royal, uh, his you know his, his royal household, and uh, he invited them in for a meal and to wish them well. And so, um, and so they, they took the offer up, and then Dingan betrayed them, slaughtered the entire company. And then they went after the Afrikaner women and children, and this was a tragedy. And the Zulus, they ripped open the bellies of pregnant women, pulled out the babies, killed the fetuses, uh, and they stomped children's heads heads into the ground disgusting. Uh, with their feet. They were absolutely brutal. And as a result of as a result of this, uh, the whole company was wiped out, uh, and they betrayed betrayed them. And there was a song made of this called Simbamba, and it's actually an Afrikaner lullaby that is still sung to Afrikaner babies today. And I think it's actually uh, it goes how mother was I think raped by by a black uh, wow. you know by a black impi, and how the British the khaki that's what they call us uh, because of the khaki shirts we used to wear used to uh, yeah. chase them. Into uh, into the actual frontier now. Luckily for the Afrikaner, they had a victory, and this was at a battle called Blood River, which was, if I recall, uh, in December, and uh, I think it uh, was the sixteenth uh, of December, and it was led by a chap called Andreas Pretorius. That was the guy I was uh, wanting to remember his name, Andreas Pretorius, and uh, it was in eighteen thirty-eight, and fifteen thousand Zulus attacked uh, the Boer position. Uh, along along the oh, I think uh, along the river, and the Boers themselves, uh, they were outnumbered. There was only four hundred, five hundred of them. They had uh, they only had gun, uh, rifles on them. Uh, they were outnumbered. Uh, there was very very few of them. It was well, it, it would have been a slaughter. And the Afrikaners under Pretorius made a covenant, made a promise to God that on that day, they would hon- that if the if God granted them victory. Um, such a miraculous victory! They would hold a covenant each each year on that day to honour this victory, and as a result, the Boers actually won that battle without a single casualty, not one single loss. And the Zulus, I think, they lost thousands of their impis, but the, the Afrikaner only had a few injuries at best. And as a result of this, 
he, he honoured that covenant. They, they, they honoured that, co- that, uh, that day with God, that they would worship God and remember that battle, and it was called the Day of the Vow or the Day of the Covenant. Um, but down to the ANC's political correctness, that's now been called the Day of Reconciliation, you know. But originally, that's what it was about. So the Afrikaner's history itself has been bloody, uh, and his, his own foundations itself have never been that um, that cheerful. Um, but eventually, he would go on to find the the free um, the Boer republics to the north, and um, and they, they were living quite happily, and you know they were prosperous. You, they, they were able to um, pretty, they were very advanced agriculturalists, and um, but the British found out that there was gold in these colonies. Now, Britain was pretty much dominated by the Rothschild banking system at this time, and as you know, the J-Boys wanted the gold. So um, the, this actually led to the first Boer War around the 1880s, and the British actually tried, tried, tried to fight with the Boers over the Transfer Colony in order to gain access to this gold. Um, but the Boers were able to win. Uh, they were outnumbered, but they used guerrilla warfare and they actually achieved some stunning victories against the British that were using conventional military tactics. And there was one called the Battle of Majuba, where the, the outnumbered Boers were literally just taking pot shots at lines and lines of British. And I did visit the battlefield of Majuba, by the way, and they suffered just a few casualties where the whole British company was wiped out. Uh, eventually, this led on to a peace treaty and um, the, the British agreed to recognise the uh, the Boer sovereignties of their own republics and the transfer was then given independence as a free colony and, uh, and, and life went on. However, more gold was discovered and this led to Cecil Rhodes and the Jamestown Raid, which then kind of started, if you like, the Second Boer War around 1899, if I recall. Was it 1898? It was one of those dates. I always get the, the two mixed up. But anyway, um, it, once again, it started the same. The British had never learnt the lesson from the original Boer War, and that is they continued with the same old conventional tactics. Uh, that is marching in a straight line with red uniforms on, and the Boers were just able to take pot shots. Now, to begin with, the Boers fought with conventional tactics, uh, line infantry, the whole lot, but eventually they had to resort to guerrilla warfare because the British just outnumbered them and had better weaponry. And as a result of this, uh, as a result of this, though, the British were losing casualties, and if, the, if it had continued, it would have been a bit like a Vietnam for the British. They would not have been able to have won. They would have had to have come to the peace table once again. So, under a scheme devised by Lord Kitchener, um, Kitchener actually decided to adopt a, a policy called the Scorched Earth Policy. Now, the Scorched Earth Policy basically advocate, imp, was implemented by the British. And what the British did, they burnt down the farms of the Boers and they took their women and their children into concentration camps. And these were the world's first concentration camps. And they deliberately starved the women and the children to death in order to get the Boers to surrender. And about 26,000 women and children were killed in these concentration camps. It was a quarter of the Africana population. It nearly wiped them out. And the British, of, in the UK, this period of history has been whitewashed from the history books, like the Japanese have whitewashed their atrocities from the history books. I mean, you never hear in Japan about the rape of Nanking, for example. It's the same here. It's been forgotten about. You ask any Englishman today about the Boer atrocities, and he won't be able to tell you. You know, it's been whitewashed uh, from history. 
and and this is what happened. And um, the Boers have never forgiven us for it. They've never forgotten it. Uh, it was it was an atrocity. They they received very little compensation. You know, it wasn't like with the Jews and their Holocaust. No way, just forgotten about. And um, so what the Afrikaners then did, they started to rebuild themselves into into a new a, a new elect electorate. And because they were able to get the numbers back up. And they soon became started to outnumber the white Brits in South Africa. Now, when the the Brits themselves had finished with the war, they they incorporated the two republics into the Union of South Africa, which was then led by, um, I think, uh, Jan Smuts and the Union Party, who were very pro-British, and they they were very loyal to the Empire and to the Commonwealth, and they wanted to you know stay in Britain. They were willing to you know fight for Britain and its wars. Um, whereas the Afrikaners, on the other hand, wanted to be independent. They were more sympathetic to Germany, um, especially because there was a lot of foreign volunteers, particularly of even German and Russian origin, that fought for the Boers, even American, during the war, and Irish too. And uh, as a result, as a result of this, uh, there was always this tension between the, um, you know, the Brits, if you like, and the Afrikaners, and it, and it came from the Boer War, but it continued even then. But what the Afrikaner did is he developed his own organisation, such as the Broderbond, and, um, which was Brotherbond and other groups that actually emphasised on an Afrikaner identity and preserving the culture and the race and the language. And what they did is they were able to get inde independence eventually and get into power through the ballot box come the 1940s and the, after the Second World War. And Smuts and the Union Party eventually were ousted and this gave rise to the Afrikaner National Party. And eventually from here on out, um, the Afrikaners then started to dominate South Africa once again. Um, and they pretty much took over the Union of South Africa and they made it into a republic. Uh, they originally still remained part of the uh, as the Union of South Africa to, until at least the 1960s, but then they they actually left. They vote they voted in a referendum to create a republic, and then they started. Uh, then they left the British Commonwealth, and and they and they became an independent free country. However, during this time, apartheid itself was adopted, which I'll, I'll discuss a bit later. But th that's pretty much the early history of the Afrikaner. And um, I thought we could now get on to the next question because I've, I've done a lot of uh, talk about that, you know, just to fire my brain up. <laughs> yeah, the next question is very interesting. This is the subject of the segregation policy called apartheid. Talk about that. Sure, apartheid. Basically, apartheid itself, um, originally the roots, as I've said before, was actually originally with the, the, the Dutch, with the original past system that segregated the races, but the British continued it and even advanced the policy to an, to an extent. Um, the, the Afrikaners, it was started under D.F. Malan, if I recall, one of the prime ministers in the 1940s, uh, and he pretty much started to first implement the the, the first, if you like, uh, laws and policies of apartheid. And this was then later on continued with Dr. Hendrik Vervoud in the 1960s. Um, such policies such as forbidding racial intermarriage came um, came popular, uh, came into law. It, it used to be a crime, like my aunt and uncle told me, to get married to somebody of a different race, let alone have sexual relations. If you did it, you went to prison. Uh, there was also... Um, there was also separation and segregation of the races. Each race was to have their own uh, homeland and identity. And Dr. Vavud himself started to push for what is now called the Bantustans. Well, and the Bantustans were originally supposed to be the black 
homelands, and that was they were going to be allocated to each black uh, eth- 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 ethnic group, such as the Zulus and the Khosas and so forth, and they'd all have their own homeland, uh, whereas the whites would have their own homeland. Now, Vavud himself could foresee in the future a time where the Africana would lose power in South Africa again. He knew that to control the black man, it would be very difficult. He would start to outnumber him. And so he was beginning to hammer in the idea that, right, we need to start to create this new white-only homeland. And so this eventually then led on to the Bantustans. Now, the Bantustans did have independence, in, in, in a sense, and the original idea was to make them completely independent states from South Africa. And the, the blacks were to live in their own homelands, they would have their own identity, passports, even their own military, and some of them did. And, and a, f- a few of them, as, as, as states, actually were quite successful, particularly Bofotswana, um, that they, they were quite a successful state. Um, but apartheid itself, it, it gave each race, racial group their own territory, uh, their own place to live, their own hospitals, their own schools, their own beaches... And um, every, everything was to be segregated and separated. And as, as, a, as a system itself, it did work. And life for the blacks under apartheid was better than it is today for the black man. The black man had food under apartheid. He had medicine. He had, uh, he, he, he had, ha- he had housing. He had jobs. He was quite prosperous. Uh, people would employ the blacks to, to, to work in the houses, to clean the toilets. Uh, they were used as a working class labour force, but they, they, they were prosperous in a sense. They, they were able to, um, to, su- to succeed as a population compared to today, whereas now, now that apartheid has ended, they have fallen into poverty. Uh, and a lot of this is down to the, the fact that the Africana, due to being condemned by the world for being racist they had to look good in the eyes of the world so they had to treat the native black african with respect uh, and to give him uh, these goods in order to show the world hey we're looking after our uh, our negroes here if you like and um and and they did this um but whereas now because it's now under a third world black African government, the world doesn't care anymore, you know. It's just, you know, oh, it's just another African country. Who cares if they're in poverty? All the Africans are in poverty. And it's like one black guy was telling me over there, he said, Jamie, he said, you know, we had it better under apartheid than, than we do now. Yes, we didn't have it as good as the white man, but we have it better than we do now. And um, it, and Dr. Vavud himself was not a racist. He... Um, he, he actually came from Dutch stock and he was the Prime Minister of South Africa, if I recall. And I think he was the, could have been the first or the second president as well. And uh, he wasn't a racist man and he always advocated a policy that is good fences make good neighbours. And people said you'd find him regularly chatting with the blacks. And, and Vavud really wanted to bring the, give these homelands independence. But unfortunately, others within the National Party saw it as... Uh, an economic loss if the blacks were to have independence. And so they wanted to keep the old apartheid system going for as long as possible. And so there's a conspiracy that Vavud was deliberately assassinated by these people. Well, he was assassinated uh, by a deranged, uh, mentally ill Greek patient in, a par- in, in Parliament in 1966, um, which is, you know, conspiracy enough, obviously, but uh, he, he was assassinated. And 
all these plans for giving full independence were suddenly scrapped and uh, and the continuation of the of petty apartheid you know the the the, the continued separation of, of the races and into their various groups and, and continuing to use black only labor continued and as a result the blacks then started to grow more prosperous in regards to numbers uh, due to the, the good health care and food offered by the africana and as a result of this, they then started to be able to dominate the system and they were able to then start to make demands on the white man um, because he w relied on them to do everything to, you know, to, to clean his toilet, to, to, you know, to making his machine equipment for him, to uh, plowing his crops. They soon became a uh, they, they soon became a powerful force and they just, you know, grew out of control. And um, eventually the vood was proven right. And um, eventually they would come to dominate the system and the white man would lose power. And uh, apartheid would eventually come down. But it's like my aunt said, Jamie, when this country was under apartheid, it was such a beautiful country. It really, really was a beautiful country. It was safe. It was clean. It was prosperous. And people had jobs and opportunities. Whereas now... It has just turned into a hellhole, and, and and that is the truth in regards to apartheid. The, th the same was true here under Jim Crow, and even before that, during slavery, the black was always in much better shape when he was uh, subject to um, white rule. It's the it's it's sad but true. It is true. It is true. I and mean, I've even spoken to a black guy recently on Facebook who wants segregation back because he said we were prosperous under yeah. segregation. We had our own churches. Right. We had our own uh, our own doctors. We 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 had our own teachers, and we were able to work together as a community. Whereas now, because of integration, we, we've had this this you know this this very this very bad 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 MTV culture influence the youth, and now we've we've become a very redundant uh, population. I saw some internet meme where it showed before and after um, apartheid in South Africa in terms of the murders, and it's it's outrageous how much more um, murders you have now that the black man is free. Oh, absolutely! In fact, do you want to know the truth, Christian, about this? Yeah. There was there was actually less blacks lynched by the KKK in an 80-year period than the amount of farmers that have been killed in, since the end of apartheid in 18 years. In fact, the actual deaths have now just gone over the lynchings. And if the lynchings themselves, I would just like to add, was mainly targeting criminals and uh, vagabonds, basically. They were not going after innocent women and children. They were just going after, you know, criminals, basically. So even yeah, even though segregation clearly saves lives, it's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong because it's racist. Whatever that means. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, like I said, in regards to the KKK, they were just after the criminals. Whereas what's happening here is these blacks are going onto these farms, and they're called the farm murders, and um, they are brutally murdering women yeah. and children and men, hacking their limbs off with machetes, raping children, infecting them with AIDS. In fact, there was one incident where, um, and I was told this, where uh, three or four of them of these, of these thugs went into this farm, and they actually said to this farmer, right, we're going to kill you, but first we're going to rape your wife and give her AIDS, and, and you can watch whilst we do this. Disgusting, I know. Uh, we just pray that God would, would rise up and strike these people. But you know, it's like Simbombar in the song, man. It's the same. It's the same situation. It's just what's happening now is exactly what happened in 1838. Yeah. 
Well, let's move on to discuss sure. Portugal's African adventures. Sure. Portugal is now an interesting country. What we have to first remember about Portugal is that Portugal was the first European colonial power, and it was also the last. Um, Portugal founded, if you like, the first colonies around the world, um, particularly in uh, in Africa and in, in Asia. It was the first country to travel to Japan and do trade with the Japanese. And uh, they even actually sailed past the Cape of Good Hope originally before the Dutch had even settled there. And they had uh, a couple of African colonies called Angola and Mozambique, and they'd established these colonies well before the... Um, the, uh, the 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 great uh, game in, in Africa started to take place, where the European powers started to carve up Africa for themselves in the 1880s to the 1890s. Uh, the Portuguese had been there for a, a few centuries, uh, and as a result of this, after the end of the Second World War, um, have you heard of a chap called Antonio Salazar? I have not. Uh, Antonio Salazar was the president of Portugal. Um, he had very um, fascist, traditional fascist roots, but he was also a Catholic and a corporatist. And he absolutely, and he had, and he was actually in charge of what the, of a government called the Estado Novo uh, regime. And the Estado Novo advocated that you know Portugal was to you know remain a, a Catholic uh, Catholic society. It was still to to retain its empire, but unlike the rest of the European powers, that after World War Two, due to U.S. pressure, they started to uh, cave in and hand the colonies independence. Portugal said, "No, we're not having any of that. We're going to hang on to the empire," and so they actually um, started to advocate that all citizens of uh, of the Portuguese empire were all Portuguese Portuguese natives if you like it was a pluricontinental empire and that was they were all you know they were all loyal to Lisbon and as a result of this during the 50s the 60s and the 70s the Portuguese sent their military units to fight to defend the colonies um, rather than give them independence um, and there was not uh, whereas the rest of the powers just they handed the, they gave the colonies independence uh, with very relative uh, very very little fighting, whereas the Portuguese, on the other hand, tried to hold on and uh, there was one operation called Operation VJ, which was uh, the Portuguese port of Goa, and that had been in Portuguese hands I think since the fourteen or fifteen hundreds and the Indians invaded. Uh, this 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 territory, and they within a day they were able to capture it, and uh, the Portuguese had to surrender. And uh, if, if I remember recall reading, even John F. Kennedy was quite, uh, if you like, peeved off with this because he viewed he viewed it as, uh, if you like, India being very hypocritical that it was spouting anti-colonialism and peace, and yet it didn't just invaded another country's territory, but. Um, but 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 anyway, Salazar was still very determined to hang on to um, to the colonies, and uh, the Portuguese sent in forces uh, to Angola and Mozambique. And there was a period from the sixties to the seventies where there was actually um, counterinsurgency operations against uh, Marxist and nationalist uh, terrorists at that time in in the colonies, and uh, the Port the Portuguese did attempt to fight for them. But Portugal was South Africa and. Rid Rhodesia, which I'll discuss a bit later, they were their own. They were their only friend, and like one person said to me, if 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 Portugal had, if, if Salazar lived just a little bit longer, there might have been still a Rhodesia today because uh, Portugal was 
was allowing South African Rhodesia to, it was actually allowed that it traded with them, it allowed their goods to flow through its ports, it even um, helped to actually disguise their goods as Portuguese goods, and so, you know, in order to actually get the goods out of the continent. So there was always friendship there with the uh, the Portuguese. However, eventually the um, the Portuguese w- would fail. Uh, Salazar passed on. There was a revolution which you know brought in a democratic liberal government, which then collapsed the nationalist uh, government of, of Salazar and the Estado Novo regime. And um, the rest of the colonies eventually went independent. However, Portugal was the last country to fight for its empire, and it, and its last colony was returned to China, and that was the Masu colony in 1999. That was uh, one of that was Portugal's only Chinese colony, and um, that was actually two years after Hong Kong had been handed over from Britain to China. So you know, Portugal, if you like, it was it was one of the last colonial empires, and I just find it very fascinating. Although, as one chap did tell me, he said the Portuguese, compared to the Rhodesians and the Afrikaners, they were bloody useless when it came to fighting. They were, you know, they were better than the blacks. They were not even as good as us. Yeah. This uh, this next topic we'll discuss has come into popular parlance a lot, and that is the Rhodesia Zimbabwe issue. Talk about the rise of Rhodesia. Okay, well, Rhodesia itself uh, was actually um, was actually a British colony, and it, it was orig- there was actually two colonies. There was North Rhodesia and South Rhodesia, uh, and South Rhodesia was um, named after Cecil Rhodes. I would just like to add, and uh, Rhode- and uh, and South Rhodesia itself was primarily settled by uh, British and Africana pioneers and colonists that trekked to the north. There was a lot of very rich farmland there, a lot of a lot of minerals. It was a very wealthy colony, and even though they were outnumbered, they they turned it into a little paradise. Uh, they only started to arrive, however, late, uh, and that was around the eighteen eighties and the eighteen nineties, up to the early, uh, up to the nineteen twenties. That's when the main migration came. At its height, the white population of Rhodesia and Zimbabwe was um, around nearly 273,000, if I recall, perhaps nearly 300,000. A lot more smaller than the Afrikaner numbers, but still very significant for a European presence compared to the rest of Africa. And and, and only South Africa and Rhodesia are the only two, two countries next to Angola and Mozambique that actually had, you know, a strong European population base. And... Um, what you actually found with the uh, Rhodesian uh, co- co- colony is that it was always loyal to Great Britain. You know, it was a British colony. It didn't have the same independence aspirations as what the Afrikaners had had. had. And, and what they did is they were, these these colonists were what I would say the best of British. I mean, if you speak to the Rhodesians today, they are like the Englishmen of old, uh, of like two hundred years ago. And if you speak to them. Um, they, they really sound very British. They're very proud to be British. They're very proud, uh, you know, uh, of belonging to the mother country. Uh, very staunch monarchists, uh, still are today, and they still very much were even back then. So they developed this very strong economic industrial power in in this in a land that ha- that, that was really just tribal. And um, Salisbury, that's now Harare today. That was the capital. And um, they uh, they were quite happy to remain under British rule, but the British 
were absolutely insistent at the end of, of colonisation that all colonies must return to majority rule. And that is because the, the, the white man was a minority, he had to surrender and become a majority, surrender it to the black majority. Now, this started to give rise to Rhodesian independence. And I will say that the Rhodesians had a gun to their head. When it came to this, they were absolutely forced. If they could have remained loyal to Britain and the empire and still remained the white minority status in government and in power, they would have done so. But Britain was not giving them the choice. And they started to see the winds, as did Vavud and the Afrikaners, when Harold Macmillan gave his Winds of Change speech in 1960. And he actually said, and then that was, they were advocating for black majority rule in all of the African colonies. So the Rhodesians... They fought back and uh, the, there was this five-point treaty uh, that the British had offered the Rhodesians, uh, which included having to accept black majority rule and they just said, no, we're not going for it. And it, it pushed comes to shove on the 11th of November 1965, Ian Smith, the Prime Minister of Rhodesia and what I call, and what I call a true hero, actually announced the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, which is known as UDI. And that is, he said, right, we're going to seek independence from Britain and become a, a free country. We have really no choice. And interestingly enough, there is a quote from Smith here, which I just wanted to uh, to bring up what he actually said the, the mission and the purpose was. And and I will just bring it, bring it up here. Yes, it, it, Smith actually said, the mantle of the pioneers has fallen on our shoulders to, to sustain civilization in a primitive country. And that was his announcement at the declaration of UDI. And uh, the British government at the time called it an illegal action. Uh, they said that it was it, 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 it was wrong, that it was it, it was against um, it, it was against international law. Um, but Britisha went ahead and did it anyway, and the British never responded with force. But as a result, the British enacted harsh economic sanctions along with the rest of the world. And as a result of this, there was actually very few countries willing to trade with Rhodesia. And uh, it, they were on their own. They were a prosperous country. In fact, they were even known as the, bre the breadbasket of Africa. Um, the, 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 it was one of the most well-fed colonies in the whole, uh, if you like, of the British Empire, let alone Africa. And, um, the, um, and, and only Japan, Iran under the Shah... And the Portuguese under Salazar were really willing to trade with Rhodesia at that time. And um, I mean, Salazar himself, as I was explaining earlier, he was actually he was actually allowing oil imports to come from the African colonies of Mozambique and Angola into Rhodesia. And uh, like one chap was telling me from Rhodesia, he said, "We once had signs in Portuguese on the back of our cars saying, thank you, Portugal, for giving us the oil, so we could, you know, fuel our economy.'" This eventually they led on to the Bush War, uh, called the Rhodesian Bush War, which was a conflict between the uh, Rhodesian uh, military and the nationalist factions, uh, two, of two black nationalist factions. Um, the first one it was the ZANU-PF, which uh, I'm sure you'll recognise the name Robert Mugabe. He was the uh, pretty much the leader of that faction. And the other one was led by a chap called, I think, uh, Joseph uh, McComey, if I recall. And uh, this was the um, the South African National Liberation Army, and um, where ZANU is the South African National Union. Oh no, sorry, Joseph McComa was the Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army. 
Now, Joshua Nakoma, he was actually more pro-Soviet, whereas uh, Mugabe was more pro-China. And the Chinese were supporting Mugabe and the Soviets were supporting Nakoma. Uh, eventually, then, Mugabe would win out in the, uh, in the elections in 1979. Although, at the time, they tried to, to unite, but, you know, eventually Mugabe took, took control. However, the Rhodesians themselves actually won the Bush War. They were outnumbered, but they had such a well-trained army that uh, the, the military itself, um, it was only, they only had about uh, 10,800 regulars and about 40,000 reservists. Um, but, and they had some, you know, some very, um, very interesting units called the Rhodesian SAS and the Rhodesian Light Infantry, which were all white. But by 1978 and 79, the majority of the Rhodesian army started to compose of black soldiers. But the blacks themselves were fighting for Rhodesia. They wanted the white man to remain in control, some of them, because the Rhodesians themselves had... Um, unlike the Afrikaners that uh, kept the black population as a, a working class population, if you like, the, Af the Rhodesians wanted to have complete separate development. And that was, you know, for the blacks to, you know, to control their own economic se sector and prosperity, whereas the white man would control his. And the blacks could also vote in the Rhodesian elections as well compared to South Africa. And um, so the blacks, so, so a lot of blacks wanted to remain under white rule. Um, but a bit of an, and there's actually a saying by Ian Smith, and that was, we we had defeated our enemies, but we were betrayed by our friends, and that was Britain, and 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 Europe and America had betrayed Rhodesia. They uh, they could have won the war, they, they could they won the war, but they lost out on the economic front, and and that's really what had happened. And uh, eventually, this then led on to the uh, the collapse of Rhodesia and the rise of uh, of Zimbabwe. And eventually from there on, the, the, the persecutions against the white man continued and that 200,000, 300,000 white population soon dissipated into just a, a few thousand today. The vast majority left. Now, the problem for the Rhodesian was that he always viewed himself as a colonist first. Now, this is different compared to the Americans and the Afrikaners that viewed themselves as native to that continent. The Rhodesians always viewed themselves as being British first or colonials. And as a result, they were even though they fought hard, they didn't have the same mentality uh, uh, that they had nowhere else to go. And this is the difference with the Africana. The Africana has absolutely uh, no, nowhere uh, nowhere else to go, uh, and that is and that is why he is determined to remain. Whereas the, the Rhodesian knew he had a homeland, and so he said, "Right, you know, we can always go back to Britain with our Burgundy passports. We'll be all right." And, uh, and so the country pretty much collapsed. Um, the, 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 far, the agriculture now there is dead, and uh, that country is now what I would call the bread, the basket case of Africa. Well, no significant aspect of history is complete without discussing the Jewish influence. What is this British Israel World Federation? The British Israel World Federation is. It was founded around the, I think, the eighteenth, nineteenth century. The British, basically, the British Israel World Federation is the for that the founder, if you like, um, or the ancestor of Christian identity, and that is, as we all know, they, you know, these people do actually believe that Europeans are the, you know, related to the Israelites and the lost ten tribes of Israel. Now, what we have to understand about the Afrikaner is that the the British Israel World Federation 
came at a time when Britain was at its imperial height and the British themselves looked upon that they were, you know, doing the work of, of Israel. Uh, uh, and, uh, and they started to actually permit that, you know, Anglo-Saxons and, and kindred peoples were actually the chosen people. And due to the Battle of Blood River and the Great Trek, the Afrikaners themselves particularly started to view themselves as Israelites in a sense. It, it came with the territory. There were this white tribe, if you like, in a land of Canaan, you know, these Christians, you know, in a land of paganism and barbarity. And so they started to view themselves as, as the chosen people in a sense, not all of them, but the mentality remained. And and what and what and what, we, what we tended tended to and what I found particularly amongst the Africana is that I wouldn't say Christian identity beliefs, but more British Israel in particular, is very predominant even amongst Rhodesian circles. They they view themselves as these people that have a mission, if you like, to civilize Africa, to bring the gospel to Africa, to um, to actually create this new Israel in the land of Canaan. And, and it, it stems back in history, and identifying British Israel World Federation itself is very popular there. Now, the Israel World Federation itself, I was a member of it uh, f briefly, um, I've read a lot of their, their literature, and I, I do actually, actually agree with with some of it, and some of them, some of it has actually given me ideas in particular, and um, they're a very friendly organisation, the BIWF, and they have a headquarters here in Britain, and I'd advocate anybody visiting Britain to actually contact the BIWF because they will give you a proper guided tour of this country. They are proud to be British, and um, the General Secretary, David Aymer, he's, he's a Rhodesian by birth, and, and he told me something very interesting, you know, because we had lots of chats about South Africa, See, this is where I discovered the Israelism. And he said to me, you know, Jamie, I was born in Rhodesia and I lost that country. That was my first country. Then I migrated to South Africa during the apartheid years and I lived peacefully there. But then I had to flee there because of the crime. So I lost my second country. And now I'm living in Britain, which is my homeland, uh, which is my third country. And I feel that at the end of my lifetime, I could very well see the loss of Britain as well. And 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 in what he meant by that is due to the European Union and mass immigration, the the decline of Christianity in, in Britain, he actually felt that within his lifetime he would have seen the death of three countries. But you know the BIWF themselves are a very friendly bunch, proud to be British, and and um, they are monarchists to the core, mind. But uh, you know they, they they will they will take you around Britain, and they and, and they try to preserve what is typically British. And um, unfortunately, they are a declining organisation in terms of numbers. Um, but I, I still found them to be true, to be true gentlemen in, in a sense of the word. And um, I'm not sure, have you heard the name Peter Hammond by any chance? No, I have not. I'm sorry. Uh, Peter Hammond, he's, he's quite active in Facebook and circles. He's actually another BIWF member as well. Um, so there's quite you know, a good number of them. And like I said, they are mainly Afrikaners and Rhodesians these days. But uh, there's still a British element. But like I said, it was the, the grandfather, if you like, of Christian identity. But it's not yeah, a racist yeah. organization. Yes, yes. Sorry, to, sorry to phrase that question as Jewish influence. I, I, I have recognized the, the term British Israel, but I, I didn't. I just saw the word Israel and flipped out. <laughs> oh no worries it's not 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 it's not at all anything to do with the jews at all in right, fact right. i would probably say they are suspicious of the Jew, the sure. jewish question themselves but the british israel tend to view the jews as the house of judah at best right. whereas obviously christian identity view them as esau but you know there's different opinions yeah i'm still learning a lot about the christian identity uh, movement and theology i've got a guest coming on who knows more about that than i do and we'll 
uh, talk about that later. But sure, I mean, I don't know all all about it, but I, I've only really put my my feet into the pond with it, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, even still, it's an interesting topic of discussion for another time. It is. How about the Israel South African alliance? Now, that's an interesting question altogether. Um, the State of Israel and South Africa were, if you like, very, very close back in the day. And um, th- this was down to the fact both of the countries were reviled in the, world, in the eyes of, uh, uh, of, the interna- in, uh, of the international community. And um, both of them had, very, had a very, very similar si- system, in a sense, in, as we call apart- Israel an apartheid country as well. The, the Jews had segregated themselves from the Arabs and the, the, blacks had, uh, the whites had done the same to the blacks. And due to the religious nature of the Afrikaners, you know, themselves looking at themselves as Israelites and the, and the Jews viewing themselves as a chosen people, both of them were able to develop something of an alliance together. Now, both of them had very close economic ties and South Africa used to have its own nuclear program uh, at, at its height the South African nuclear program had about um, six nuclear weapons if I recall that's actually it was the only African country to have a nuclear weapons program and that actually came around from um, economic and military ties with the Israeli state and there was an incident called the Vela incident and the Vela incident um, was a nuclear test between w- between the South Africans and the Israelis, and it was a secret one. And this was part of the the, the nuclear program at that time. And the Israelis themselves offered t- to sell the Afrikaners uh, Jericho missiles. Um, uh, and I think it was Menachem Begin or. Uh, Shimon Peres, it could have been both of them. They were actually in discussions with P.W. Botha at the time, who was the president of South Africa in the 1960s. No, it's not Botha, it's Botar, sorry. And um, Botar said, um, yeah, yes, I, uh, he was quite happy to, to work with Israel on this. They never accepted the missiles mine, but, the, but Shimon Peres, I think, said, how many do you want? Um, the, the, the Israelis were willing to supply, I think, the, the Afrikaner with perhaps even up to 30 nuclear weapons if he, if he wanted. They, they were that close and a lot of the military equipment as well. It, it was developed with Israel. So they had very, very close ties. And at the end of apartheid, the Israelis themselves actually asked the question, you know, these people are actually our friends and uh, we've actually betrayed them. Uh, well, they hadn't, but obviously the Jews on the ground had done um, because a lot of the... The, the vast majority of the anti-apartheid activists were, as you know, Jewish. Uh, Joe Slovo, Ruth Kelly, Harry Schwartz, just to name, they're the three top prominent anti-apartheid activists. And they're the all J-boys. All J-boys. No, actually, Ruth was a J-girl. <laughs> That's the difference. She was a J-girl, but they were all J-boys. But like the top 12 as well, all of them Jews. And like my uncle and aunt were telling me, they said... The Jews in this country were treated with a lot of respect. You know, they were given the same economic opportunities as the white Africana. They had their own successful, prosperous businesses. They were wealthy and they lived a good life. And I said to them, well, what party did they actually support? By and large, did any of them support the National Party? And they they said to me, very few. The vast majority of Jews supported ending apartheid. And you know what's funny, Christian? Do you know what's funny? The Jews, as soon as apartheid came down, they all fled to Israel. As oh, soon, sure. 
as soon as it came down, they were straight back to Jerusalem, buddy. You know, they didn't stay to live in their new, uh, y- 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 you know, multiracial democracy. Yeah, they all fled. Exactly. They've, they've got their own segregation-like laws over there, their little uh, Jewish enclave. Oh, absolutely. You know, but, you know, it's one rule for the Jews, one rule for us. But I will say one thing, though. There are a few Jews that still are very close to the Afrikaners. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a chap called Evidor Eskin? No, sir. Evidor Eskin is a nationalist Jew, and uh, he is actually in contact with a chap called Dan Root, who's an Afrikaner nationalist. And Eskin has always said a slave should never rule over a master. Yeah. And he he he's one of these that was saying the Africana was our best friends in those days. We worked with them; they were godly people, and we sold them out. And we we should not have done that, you know. So there are some Jews that recognise that, you know, selling out the Africana wasn't a good idea because as soon as they did it, the relations of South Africa yeah. went from pro-Israel to anti-Israel sure. because the ANC is pro-Palestine. There's a there's a there's a great video by the way people should search on YouTube if it's still up anti-racist Hitler have you seen that yet I've seen it it's a great it, video I it's love a it. classic oh it is that's going to go down in like internet history it is know? it's uh, it's about ten minutes long and it's it's worth uh, it's worth your time if you haven't seen it do you want to know something funny though uh, Christian but uh, I was talking to a Jew earlier on and uh, and uh, you know this and, and 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 this Jew was telling me that the Jews themselves actually view us as Esau can you believe that. Mm-mm. No, you can't believe it. I mean, how could we be Esau? It's insane. Wow. You know, I mean, you know, when you think about it, we have built prosperity. We have brought civilization to the world. In fact, in BIWF circles, uh, one Jew actually said to some of these BIWF members or, and a British officer, he actually said, you know something, the, the, the British themselves are doing the work that the Jews themselves should be doing. Huh. And, and that was the truth. <laughs> So, uh, you know, if, if there ever has been a case for Israel, I think we've been doing it a long time ago. And, uh, and, it, and, and I would like to say to people, if you wanted to really see what the Israelites would have been like, you can see it in the Africana. They act more like the Israelites than the Jews do. Hmm. Good point. Oh, yeah. Now, you have traveled to Orania and spent some time there. Talk about your visit. Oh, Irania. Now, Irania, oh, I could talk about this a day. So, you know, like I said, people, it's going to be a long topic. You know, hang on to your chairs. Um, now, Irania itself was founded around the early uh, 1990s um, in response to the, uh, the you know, the, the release of Nelson Mandela and the coming of the end of apartheid. Uh, before I just go on to Nelson, uh, Irania, by the way, uh, just to let people know, Nelson Mandela was arrested and put in prison for terrorism and killing people, not for peacefully opposing apartheid. So that's why they put him in prison. Just so you all know that question. You probably do. But to others out there, just so you know. Anyway, um, Irania itself was founded by a chap called uh, Carl uh, Bossoff III. Now, um, if you look at it, the English spelling, it looks like Carol. It's spelled C-A-R-E-L, but it's actually Carl. I mean, when I got there, I was pronouncing the name as Carol Boshoff, but uh, the name's Carl Bossoff, and people are looking at me and saying, what, who's Carol Boshoff? You know, Carol Boshoff. I don't know Carol <laughs> Boshoff. You know, but anyway, uh, pronunciations, man. But anyway, Irania was seen as an attempt to do what Vavud had originally advocated, and that was creating a white-only Africana homeland. And Vavud himself... Uh, like I said, he saw the day when the black man would rule South Africa. And now Carl Bossoff himself was a relative 
of the Vood. He'd married one of the Vood's daughters and his children still live in the town today and grandchildren and their grandchildren of, of, of Dr. Vood, who also, in my opinion, is a hero. And the, and the boss off said, right, you know, we're probably going to, we're going, we're going to lose this country. So we're going to have to build a new homeland for ourselves from scratch and we're going to have to do our own labor. So basically the Africana has engaged on the third great trek. And that is they've had to go and trek out again and found a new homeland for themselves. And they bought this dilapidated water station that had no life whatsoever. These, if you like, the, you know, this, this group of Afrikaners led by Bossoff. And they brought, and they bought this, uh, this water station back in the early nineties. There was no life there. It was just there's nothing and they built this up into such a successful prosperous community within this within the space of of 20 years amazing they've done a real real good job with it um but bossoff himself had advocated and he said if we want to have independence and survive as a folk we need to do our own labor we cannot rely on the black man to do our own labor anymore because if we do he will always outnumber us and we will always be held hostage to him this is what he was advocating and so he advocated right we've got to get back we've got we've got to clean our own houses clean our own toilets grow our own food and we need to get back to basics we need to build our own house we need to build our own community and they did and um at first there was only a few hundred family a few families that went out and everybody at that time was calling them a bunch of nutters and racists and neo-Nazi cranks like they always do. You know, that couldn't accept the new South Africa and be trendy and cool. You know, you know the types. And they're all pointing their fingers and saying, oh, man, you know, you, you, you know, we all need to become part, part of this new South Africa and join together. Whereas Bossoff and Kay were saying, it's not going to work. Best of luck with it. but We'll try our own direction. And so they founded this town built it all from scratch from their own hands not one single black hand had, uh, had touched the place or white labor built their own houses and um, i mean and and i'd always been fascinated in the place because now that Europe, england is becoming a brown country and others and we're losing our own freedom and independence i actually realized that in order to survive we need our own homeland and so i'd always been fascinated by going to Irania. And so I mentioned it to my uncle and aunt. Now, Irania from Cape Town is like 11 or 12 hours away. Now, for us Brits, we don't travel. At most, London's three, three and a half hours from us, you know. We don't travel. Um, and to us, three hours is a long drive. You know, people don't like travelling three hours here, let alone half an hour. Uh, Brits are very, very lazy. So for, for an 11-hour trek, it, for me, it really was a great trek. But I really wanted to go. And my aunt and uncle... They said to me, Jamie, if this was under apartheid, we would have let you travel all around the country. But since it is so unsafe now, you know, we'll let you go to Irania because we'll know you'll be safe there. But anywhere else, we wouldn't even let you dream of going. And so they gave me their blessings and got me to the coach. And I, I took this, this, this 11 hour journey. And even on the coach up, I noticed there was apartheid on the coach even, you know, the whites and the blacks have segregated themselves and, you know, they're all chatting amongst their own. So, you know, even today you can still see the signs of apartheid are still there. And so I get to Irania and it was in the early hours of the morning, but just a few hours before I'm due to get there, I'd been in contact with a, with a friendly chap called Dr. John Stratum. And Dr. John Stradham had said, uh, you know, look, we'll arrange it a lift for you. You know, we know you're coming from afar and, you know, you're taking the bus and, you know, you're not used to this country. So, you know, we'll, we'll help you get there. And and so it was great. And I chatted to the chap who was going to pick me up and everything's fine. 
And so we get up there and uh, suddenly three hours before I'm, I'm about ready to arrive in Hopetown, which is the town near Irania, I get this text message saying, oh, the chap that was due to pick you up can't do it, so I'm going to have to do it. Now, think to yourself, you're in a country here that's like one of the most dangerous in the world. I mean, even Russia and 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 China and all these other countries in Iran, they are safer, where South Africa is the most dangerous country. And we hear all about these other countries, yet South Africa, nothing can compare. And I was absolutely, pardon my language, ladies and gentlemen, but I was shitting myself, literally. I was panicking. I was praying because I thought to myself, I could be left out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this country that I don't know, you know. Uh, I I was scared, you know. I wasn't used to this, you know. I'm only a semi-experienced traveller, you know. This is my first real great trek. But true to the word, those people did not abandon me. There was a guy there to pick me up, and there was another guy there who helped me out with it, and they got me to Irania. And it was only half an hour from the town, but they got me there safely. And all all he wanted was just 150 rand, which is about, I think, in our money, about 11 or 10 pounds. Not sure what it is in dollars, uh, just for fuel. And I gave him 200. And I just said, look, mate, you know, you've, you've done this on a call. You've come out in the early hours and you wasn't supposed to, you know, take this. And he said, thanks. You know, nice guy. And I stayed at a, in a self-serving apartment with um, a, f- a friendly, lovely couple called uh, Umkus and Tani Tinike. And uh, Um is uncle and Tani is aunt, respectively. And they always, they were traditional, you know, staunch, old school Afrikaners, but they were lovely. And they actually became spiritual grandparents to me, in a sense. And uh, they'd all, and she'd go to me, oh, look at him, um, because he looks like one of the grandchildren, you know. And they were so fascinated that I was so pro-Irania. Now, what you have to understand about Irania is that due to the, the, the past misdeeds of the British, there is still distrust from the British, and they get a lot of these Brits going into Irania, calling them racists and everything else. Then suddenly you get Jamie Dobby in there who's supporting Irania 120% and they couldn't believe it. So it was like, you know, it's, it's like they won the lottery or something. It's like, you know, this isn't something you see every day. And so um, they were very helpful and they looked after me and they, uh, they said, they, and I wanted to work in Irania. I actually wanted to live in that town. And because it was so beautiful, Christian, it was the safest town I've ever been in. And my aunt had said to me before I got on that bus, Jamie, give your passport and your wallet to that nice Mr. John Stradham, you know, and you make sure he keeps it safe for you because this is not a safe country. And when I mentioned this to Tanikin Tinnikin, she just laughed and she said, Jamie, this is Irania, man. You leave your passport and your money of your wallet in, in that room with the windows and the doors open. And I can guarantee you. Not one person will go in there, except for me to get the dog out if it runs in. Otherwise, nobody will go in there. And do you know the truth, Christian? Nobody went in that room. Wow. I actually left my, my wallet there with my passport, wallet full of money, and not one person went in there and took anything out. It was like going back to Britain in the 1950s. In fact, I even actually wrote a review for Irania, uh, and you can find it on the Irania website, but just type in Irania Jamie Dobb and... Um, uh, and you should be able to find it. Um, but I wrote an extensive review of the town, about 20 pages, and I absolutely loved my time in that town. I felt safe, and for the first time, I felt proud to be who I was. These people, these Afrikaners that traditionally had loathed the British, they treated me like a son, like uh, an honoured guest, and they, they gave me such a lot of respect. Even the ones that you could tell had a, a dislike towards the British, they still treated me with respect and kindness. 
and they and there was no racism in Irania. People say it's a racist town. It is not a racist town. If people say though, is it about black and white? And I would say it's only a quarter about white. It's virtually about, but it's not about black or white at all. It's only a quarter, and by that. When I say quarter white, it, it, me, it, what I mean by that is they only want to preserve the traditional heritage and the ethno heritage of the Afrikaner, which is Dutch, French and English. But it's not a whites only town. This is what people mistake it for. It's an Afrikaner only town. Only Afrikaners can move into Irania, not whites. They don't want uh, Thomas, Boris and Jan in the town. They don't want Tommy Atkins in the town. They don't want uh, Fritz in the town either. You know, they want it to be... For the Afrikaner, it's about the Afrikaner. And they always emphasize this with me. You know, you could move in if you wanted, Jamie, but you, you'd have to keep being reviewed every few months and you'd have to really become an Afrikaner to do this. Um, you know, so no foreign white can just move into the town. You know, it's about the Afrikaners only. So, you know, it's not a racist town. But I'm just being honest here when I, when I say, you know, it, it is a little bit about white in the sense they want to preserve their own ethno heritage. But is that a crime? Is it a crime that the Circassian Addy guys want to maintain their own heritage and they're white too? It's not a crime. So therefore, I don't see anything wrong with it. But they're called racist for it. And they're not. These people were not racist, no, in fact. Sounds like a were, beautiful thing. It, Christian? I have met more racists in a Mansfield bus station than I have in Irania. There was more racists in right. Cape Town than I met in Irania. And the truth is, there was no racism because there was no multiracialism. People were safe. People were not looking over right. the shoulders like they were in Cape Town. They knew they could leave their doors and windows open because nobody would go in. They knew there wasn't going to be somebody ready to machete them around the neck or rape their children. They knew that they were safe. They could let their children play freely. It was a wonderful town. But the whole concept, though, it's about building a self-governing Folkstadt, which is a new Afrikaner state. And there's another town called Kleinfontein, which is attempting to do this. But Kleinfontein and Arania differ. Whereas Arania, and this is what Umkus told me, he said, Jamie, the difference between Arania is that we've made the full step towards using our own labour, and that's the way towards independence. We're the real deal. In Kleinfontein, on the other hand, they've become a security village and they do still use black-only labour. You know, they, they've, just, uh, they've just segregated themselves from the rest of the country. And if you look at the pictures of Kleinfontein and Arania, Kleinfontein's walled off to the rest of the country, whereas Irania's got no walls. You can just drive through, there's no walls, no security fences, no, you know, guards that are asking for your pass. Anybody can drive through, it's free. And and that's the difference. And, um, and blacks are allowed into the town to visit as well. Um, but, um, and they do get them in coming, uh, and they do come in, especially the journalists, to visit the town, but it's an Afrikaner-only town. Uh, they also have their own governing body, which is elected in members of the town, um, and that's called the Dorpsrad Council. And uh, I met the mayor, who was Carl uh, Bossoff the Fourth. Reminds me of Blackadder now, this does. But uh, and uh, he, he, a lovely chap. He's a grandson of Vivud, and he's a reader of Roger Scruton, which is a philosopher. And um, Scruton himself is a traditionalist conservative, and and Carl gets a lot of his ideas from Mon Scruton. But Carl is no racist man. He's a philosopher. He loves the Africana and he wants the best for the town. And I, I met with these people and uh, I, and there was one guy called Sebastian Beale and he's German. And Sebastian Beale, um, he was like me. 
And he came to Irania back in its heyday in the early 1990s and he wanted to go and live there because he loved the Africana and he loved what they were about, their conservative values, you know, no sex out of marriage, um, you know, being, being good to your neighbour, uh, helping each other out. All of these were values of the Africana and he wanted to be part of that. Uh, but he was a German and he could not speak a word of Afrikaans. And, and Carl said to me and others, you remind us all of a young Sebastian Beale, you know, and I wanted to become an Afrikaner and I still view them today as my people, in a sense, you know, my own folk. And I'll never forget that experience. And if if they were ever in trouble, I would take a gun up for those people because, you know, I like Sebastian Beale. Sebastian said to me, Jamie, I've washed my hands of Germany. These are my people now. And I feel the same with the Afrikaner. I've washed my hands of Great Britain. I feel that they have become my people and I care about them. And and after seeing that, I felt suddenly hope that there is hope in this world, that God really is with us. And these people obeyed simple biblical law. I, in fact, if you wanted me to be honest about the Iranians, I would say they were more kinist than anything. They they could relate more to the kinists. You know, they're not racist. They were just natural kinists. And, um, and by that, they, they understood race, but they just wanted to have their own little bit of homeland. And I stayed with a guy called... Um, Frank, Frank, and he was a Rhodesian, and he told me all sorts of stories, you know, about Rhodesia and uh, South Africa, and he said to me, Jamie, this country is going the exact same way as Rhodesia, however, the difference is the Afrikaner will fight on, because he's been here for a long time, but, uh, you know, it's I've seen this all before, and I'm seeing it happening exactly as what I saw in Rhodesia. But he, he took me into his house and he charged me very little to stay with him for the week. And these are people that didn't even know me, but because of their Christian ethics and behaviour, they, they took the stranger in and looked after me. They fed me and they kept me safe. And he said to me, do you know what the problem is with England, Jamie? Nobody goes to church there anymore. The difference with these Afrikaners is they still go to church, whereas people in your country do not go to church anymore. And that has always hit me. But if I if and I say to people, go to Irania because you'll never experience anything like it. And this is what is needed in America, an American Irania. And that's me on Irania for a bit. Do you know anything about the their laws regarding guns? Do, do they have the capacity to defend themselves? Now, this is interesting. They originally did under the old South Africa, but now they've started to take the guns off them. And you have to have re registration in order to get guns. However, the criminals can still get the guns as usual. But this is South Africa, man. This is not like the, the lemming British in, in the UK that, you know, surrendered without a, with a barely a whimper. These are the Afrikaners, man. And the, the Afrikaners, uh, this is Dr. John Stradham recently in an interview on Irania a few years ago. And Irania has have got guns, and so has Kleinfontein and other outposts. They're, they've armed themselves, even though the government says you can't have guns. They've said, nope. We have the right to defend ourselves. There is so much crime, you can't take these guns off us. You know, because if we have these guns taken off us, how can we defend ourselves in a country as wild as South Africa? You know, so they they are armed, yes. Even though it's officially not allowed, this is South Africa, this is third world, you know. People can get away with things over there, you know. It's, it's like what my, my cousin was telling me, she said... In this country, if you get a parking ticket, there's two options. The first is the officer will give you the choice of paying half the fee or giving him a bribe and so you'd pay give him the money or give him like a watch or something and he'd drive off the second option would be to pay up the full fee and get a, you know and get you know get a um 
uh, well, you, you know, black mark on your license, and uh, you know, have to pay up the full, you know, pay the full ticket. So what a lot of them just do is, you know, pay pay the bribe and they just disappear. But this is how things work in South Africa. So it'll be the same with the guns and other aspects. You know, they, you know, they get around the system. Right on. You wanted to talk a little bit about some of Ransburg's prophecy. Yes. Cena van Rensburg, he is a fascinating chap, and I have to say, uh, everybody listening to this, his prophecies are becoming true. Cena van Rensburg was a uh, was actually a Boer farmer, and he was born around the 1860s. And he always had these visions right from being a child. And his mother would look into his eyes, and she said, "I could see." within him that he, he he had this very sad look yet he could look into your soul almost and he could not read anything else but the bible that's all he could read the bible you know and it's true he did not know any other book uh, he couldn't read anything else but the bible and he always believed he received these visions from god now before people think oh this is just another nostradamus you know blah 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 psychic or prophet or whatever um, a psychic or you know a demon if you like van rensburg was nothing of the sort he was a genuine and honest christian man and he never pre he never advocated violence he loathed violence and he served in both the boer wars and he wouldn't even fire a gun you know that's how van rensburg was anyway van rensburg uh, saw visions of the future regard but only relating to the future of the boer the Afrikaner. Uh, and what it would tie in with the rest of the world. And what Van Rensburg actually saw uh, originally during his time was the rise of the British concentration camps. He also saw movements of the British during the Boer War. And if it wasn't for Van Rensburg, there was times when the Boer army could have been absolutely destroyed. And Van Rensburg said to General Coos de la Rey, look, you know, go over there. Um, you, you know, go over here, don't go over there, otherwise the British will capture you. And so they did this. And even Coos de la Rey believed that Van Rensburg was a prophet and he saved the Boer army many times. But Van Rensburg saw this horrible prophecy of these concentration camps and he said it to Coos de la Rey. And Coos de la Rey said, don't be ridiculous, Cena. The British wouldn't do things like that. They're civilised like us. You know, that's what the, the barbarians do. But when he found out, he was just like, Cena's right. Couldn't believe it. And Cena saw a vision of, of, of his own daughters dying in these camps. And um, and he just said he just saw the angels ascending to heaven. And he said, but this is the height of Britain, but Britain would have its own downfall. And he predicted the first, the, the two world wars, but he actually had predicted within them that Germany would lose both of them, but it would rise as, an econ as a new superpower again in the future. And he also said Britain as a country would eventually be destroyed and that it would suffer seven plagues. And these seven plagues constituted the loss of its empire the, and the independence of its colonies, uh, the downfall of Britain's economy, the downfall of its military, uh, natural weather disasters, which we're having now, and also the mass migration of, of non-whites into Britain, especially from the Commonwealth. And he even saw visions re relating to the blacks moving into Europe in America. And he actually said that there would be this horde of Kaffirs, and I'll explain that word. Kaffirs is the word in Afrikaans for nigger. 
Uh, and so is coolie is the the word for nigger regarding the Indians, and hot, and hot not is you know the nigger for the coloureds. Just telling people these words so that you don't get confused. Because I went over there and nearly got these words confused because to our ears they sound innocent. And and I nearly ordered a cup of kaffir once because it sounds like coffee and even looks like coffee. So that's like ordering a cup of nigger. <laughs> don't do that, you know. <laughs> but you hear people using them and you're like, what the heck's this word, you know? Yeah. And it's like. It's like coolie. It's just, uh, you know, we all use that. But anyway, Van Rensburg said all these blacks would move into Europe and eventually they would, you know, destroy Europe in a sense and and that there would be a lot of fighting. But there was a book called Voice of a Prophet released by Adrian Snyman back in the 90s and it it was talked all about Van Rensburg's prophecies and I read every single one of them. And this was released before 9-11, before everything happened. And Van Rensburg had seen at the turn of the next century, which he meant the 21st, that there was going to be an economic depression, that Britain was going to be in its weakest state before it was destroyed, that America would be reduced to a second power, that Germany would once again rise as an economic superpower, and that the Boers, the Afrikaners, would be free and would actually create a new superpower in Africa. And he actually said that the whites in Europe and America would eventually reawaken and fight back. But due to World War Three, that would start over Syria. And I am not joking this, folks. It had in the book that the Russians and the Americans would fight in Syria. And I could not believe this. I read this three years ago and thought it was ridiculous. Now what I'm seeing, I'm beginning to think it's true. He said it would start over Syria, that Palestine, which was the name for Israel at the time, would be destroyed and that the white Christians of Europe would flee to South Africa, and that they would create a new United States of America in Africa, and that the black man would become a minority in a similar way to the the Red Indian, and that it would become a power, but it would be under the Africana. And he said that he couldn't see anything else after uh, the end times, but all he could see, but he did say one thing, the Boer would be the last to fall, when the end times and the Antichrist does arrive, but he said they would have, a, you know, a few, you know, a good hundred years or so of prosperity, and that's this is what Van Rensburg actually foresaw. Now, some actually regard him as a prophet. Others say, but like Tandy Tinnick and Uncus were telling me, they said the problem with Van Rensburg is that Jesus Christ said, "No more prophets come after me," uh, whereas which kind of invalidates Islam as well because Muhammad came after jesus but they've said his visions were still very interesting and and by and large he was accurate but we have to take it with a pinch of salt but he did have interesting views and that, that but that by and large there was one guy i was talking to who was a big reader of van rensburg and he said jamie back in the 1980s nobody in this country believed that we were going to have a black government yet i was the only one that knew about it. And I said to people, Sina van Rensburg said we would have a black government and everybody laughed at me. And then 14 years later, we had a black government. But he also said that Sina said, and this is this is the famous one, have you ever heard of Night of the Long Knives? No, sir. Well, Night of the Long Knives is basically, this is what van Rensburg foresaw and another woman called Johanna Brandt. And that was van Rensburg saw that the a famous black leader would ascend to power in South Africa. He would dismantle the whites and the Boers would be oppressed uh, like they are now. And he said this would be a man of peace when he was really a man of violence. This describes Mandela perfectly. And he said this, this famous black leader would die. And the whole world 
just at the height of World War Three, would come into mourning for him. And there was going to be a glass coffin made, and this famous black leader would be mourned in this glass coffin in Johannesburg for nine days, and all the world's leaders would be there. And then this, this, this famous black leader would be buried, and then after nine days or several months, I'm not sure, the blacks would rise up to kill the whites of Johannesburg and Pretoria, and about... He actually saw 500,000 whites dying in Johannesburg to black hordes. And it's called Night of the Long Knives. And in fact, the vast, and both whites and blacks in that country believe that when Nelson Mandela dies, the blacks will rise up to kill the whites. Now, some say it's ridiculous. It'll never happen. You know, it'll, life will just go on in the new South Africa. But I disagree because the blacks themselves believe it's going to happen and they actually believe they have to do this in order to get prosperity. This is the same with Dingan and the, the Zulus. They believe if they slaughtered the white man, they'd be able to, um, you know, gain prosperity. It's the, it's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, they have to drive the, the boer away. And so they're all waiting and there's been blacks saying to whites in that country, we'll, keep, we'll spare you when, if Madiba, that's Mandela's native name for a call, still breathes, but as soon as Mandela is dead, then we're coming for you. And and just think about it, Christian, when Mandela dies, what's going to happen? You're going to have the entire world there over at the funeral, you're going to have Madonna singing Elton Bloody John, uh, you're going to have David Cameron and Barack Obama bawling their eyes out, you're probably going to have Charles there weeping away, you know, probably even George Bush, the whole lot are going to be doing it. Then this is what Van Rensburg foresaw, because they've turned this man into a messiah. And this is what Van Rensburg saw. And after this, the, uh, the, uh, this massacre would then occur. And, and after that, that's when World War Three starts. Fascinating stuff, Jamie. I know. And trust me, when I actually read this a few years ago, I didn't believe any of this. And then suddenly I start to see these signs and I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? This man must have got something right. And he said also Japan would be destroyed by earthquakes. And I thought come on and then suddenly you get that earthquake with fukushima and then you've got the japanese talking about buying land from india and other countries to evacuate the japanese to maybe van rensburg saw that too right well what is um, the 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 future of the africana in your view well i just would also like to point out that uh, me and um, that me and andy have been having a, dis- a good discussion that's i don't know how you pronounce his name but is and i would just also like to say in regards to andy that he has been a good friend to me yeah. and um he's going to be on next week to discuss more about the plight of the african i was going to ask you if you could help me pronounce his name because Addy and i've been emailing and he's he's trying to get me to learn how to pronounce it by sending me words that sound like it and i'm thinking <laughs> but i think I, we, I think he has a different understanding of how i would pronounce the the ending of montana the a yeah, he says that his Addy, the A in Addy, sounds like the last A in Montana. So I'm thinking, um, Addy, Addy, I don't know. It could be Ad, maybe or Ad or something. But I don't know how to <laughs> pronounce it. It's such a complicated name, even for my English tongue. But uh, I would just like to say he's been a good friend to me. And Addy, if you're listening to this, thank you very much, mate. Because it's down to you that I'm on this radio station today. And I'll tell you about that funny story before the, uh, the show ends of how me and Addy met and how I got into this. But if it wasn't for Addy, I wouldn't be sat here doing this with you today. He introduced me to all of this. And But anyway, in regards to the future of the Africana, me and Addy was discussing this the other, the, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I said to him, my belief is the Africana has 20 years left. 
what do you say? And he said, I'm in agreement with you. We've got 20 years left to make a difference. And yeah. after 20 years, we're going to find it hard to survive. We might not go extinct, but then our window of opportunity will have passed. The Africana birth rate is at, if I recall, 1.80 or so on the total fertility rate. It's higher than the Western birth rate, just below replacement level, but they can still recover. Uh, the the Africana was still ha was at replacement level even 20 years ago. They were still having a lot of children. This So compared to the Western demographic rate, um, loss, the Africana has still been replacing himself until relatively recently. Three kids for a family was by and large the norm, even even more children. And But because of the violence against them and because of the rising black birth rates, um, as a population, they are going to get squeezed out. Now, I, I think on a demographic situation, they have only got, like I said, about 20, 20 years. The Afrikaners will fight. Like I've said before, like the Americans, they are native to Africa and they won't give up without a fight. You know, they will dig their heels in and they will fight back. But they've only got 20 years. And after that... That's it. I personally think there is going to be a race war in South Africa. I think it's getting to that point now. The blacks hate the whites. The whites are scared of the blacks. And uh, there's a chap called Julius Malema over there. He's advocating for genocide of the Boer. Uh, the, the ANC wants to nationalise the farms and take nationalise the mines. And... Um, and I was reading a chap, uh, a chap who was talking about Thabo Mbeki, who was the one of the presidents of South Africa, the one before Zuma, and he said you cannot beat the Afrikaner in the bush because he's so used to fighting in the bush. So therefore, you have to beat him out with crime and economics, and that is, you've got to make it so unsafe for him that he'll flee the country. And by and large, this has taken place. At least a quarter of the population, a million Afrikaners since the end of apartheid, have fled. And only the, the diehards, if you like, and the, the, the traditional conservatives and the fools are still there. They, they had about 5 million whites in that country, and that was about 3.5, if I recall, maybe 4. They've lost literally a million people, including the British South Africans. The British South Africans, on the other hand, though, they're, pardon my language, but they're screwed. Um, as, as a population, they've never really been able to get an identity going, and they are reliant on the Africana in the sense that uh, their future is with the Africana. Bavud uh, himself tried to um, emphasise on unity with the Africana, uh, with the British, and he tried to make amends with this, but a lot of Brits supported the Jews in anti-apartheid because they were liberal and they wanted to, you know, stick two fingers up at uh, at, uh, at the Boer, whereas, whereas the Afrikaners are naturally conservative people. And um, the, Bo the Boers themselves, um, and so there's always been this divide between them, but some of them have always sided with the Boers. And what you'll find is the remaining Englishmen will prop up the Boer numbers, they will migrate and amalgamate into the Boers and make up that future white population. So that's something else possibly in their favour. In my own opinion, I think the Afrikaner will survive and get his homeland, but I think it's going to be a very bloody struggle and I think we could see something akin to the return of the Third Boer War. But you never know, we might see volunteers going out to fight for them like we saw in the Second Boer War. Because always remember, the Irish, the Polish, the Russians, the Germans... I think there may have been some Frenchmen and even Italians all went out and volunteered to fight for the Boer during the Second Boer War. And so, you know, and Van Rensburg also said he saw white tents from all around the world, from America, from England, from Germany, all coming to fight with the Afrikaner in his time of need during these last days. So 
I think it could happen, but I'd say within the next 20 years, it's make or break for them. That's that's it. After that, it's going to be it's going to be a struggle. They need the their republic within two decades, otherwise, I think they will be pushed out of that continent that their forefathers had conquered. Yeah. yeah and just a reminder that we will have uh, two South African folks on next, uh, not next Saturday, but July sixth. Jan and Addy will be talking about the history of the Boer people, the political history of the Boer people from a covenantal context. So do tune in there on uh, 4th of July weekend for that show. Jamie, it's been an excellent, excellent interview again. Very well prepared, uh, very well prepared, obviously, and good comments from the chat room. People really, really enjoy you. You're a good storyteller and a natural and a true scholar. So anything else you want to say in closing? Yes, and I thought I'd just actually spend the, if it's all right, the next 10 minutes, I just thought I'd just talk about Addy and me and our little, uh, you know, how, how I got involved with this. Well, yeah, sure. me, uh, Addy, um, it, we actually met each other from uh, the Faith and Heritage website, and what it was is I, I just joined the British Israel World Federation, and... Um, and what I did is I, I was looking for information if, Brit- if the Europeans are the Israelites of old. And um, I actually uh, was looking for information and I actually stumbled upon faith and heritage on a, an article written by Adi out of all people. And I actually saw that Adi had written this review for Irania and he'd also written articles I was interested in. And so I gave him an email and said, hi, Adi, uh, mate, my name's Jamie. I went to South Africa last year. I was in Irania and I wrote this really extensive art review and I, I sent him a link to the, the 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 article next thing i know i get this article this this email back and he's saying jamie this is absolutely incredible i just came back from iran here two days ago you know on, on one of the, the rock festivals and he just said i can't believe this you know and he and both of us are believers in divine providence and so we're both chatting away and so he introduces me then to the kinists and the the, the reformed think tank and rush dooney and and we just developed this friendship and i just thought how, how crazy is it that God works in such mysterious ways? Just one little internet click and you end up, you know, meeting this person who introduces you to all of this. And it's like I've said before, it's down to Addy. I'm doing this interview with you today. If I'd not bumped into Addy last year, I wouldn't be giving this interview. So it's just weird how these things link. And, and, and all this comes down to yeah. me going to Irania. It all connects. And um, because a lot of the, some of the Iranians, you see, were British Israel members. And so they were always more you know sympathetic and so they put me in touch with the the group the biwf and it just all sprung from there and i just also would like to say to people in regards to adi and yarn they're going to be able to give you the absolute lowdown on what's going on in south africa in regards to the boo i mean i'm only an englishman and i can only tell you what i've heard from an english perspective i mean these guys they are listening to what the the Afrikaner and the boo is talking about in his own language uh, you know they know all the, the juicy details and the you know the naughty gossip so they're going to really be able to give you the real lowdown but um but like i said they're absolutely brilliant lads and i you know i hope you enjoy listening to the next week and uh, i would also before we like to go i would just like to say a prayer to the Afrikaner on on this show if you don't mind christian please go ahead Dear Father and Lord in heaven above, please deliver the Afrikaner from this evil that is afflicting him and his people. Please guide us all to our own destiny and please let us stand together as good comrades that we may fulfill the destiny of Israel and that we may stand until the end of time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Amen. Well, I think uh, I will uh, I'll leave it there, but it's been an absolute uh, pleasure once again, and I think I've nearly done up to two hours, so uh, I think I'm now fancying a cigarette. <laughs> it's, it's been fun. I know it's late your time. Thanks again for doing that. And Absolutely. No, no worries, mate. We'll, I've enjoyed uh, it. Thanks for all the chat room participants, and we'll see you guys in two weeks for Addy and on South Africa, and then we've got some interesting shows lined up. Laurel Loafland on Kinest Resources. Wheeler McPherson's coming on. Uh, Tim Harris is coming on to discuss the Holy Catholic Church. Mickey and Robert, some other return engagements. Check out our site on com to view the, the, um, the schedule there. And we will wrap the show up and see you guys next time. Thank you. Ooh. Yeehaw!